Okay, hello, welcome back to the second episode of the Clill Voices podcast. Uh, I'm Matthew, and I'm here with Matt. How are you, Matt? Hi. Yeah, good. Yeah, welcome back. It's been it's been a very long time, um, almost a year, I think. Hmm. Since we released our, our our first episode. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've we've we have seen each other outside of of the podcast, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's yeah. been it's been almost a year uh, since we recorded episode one. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we haven't uh, been completely lazy behind the scenes. Um, we've been sort of planning out a few different episode types, um, uh, thinking of other collaborators who are going to come in and help us uh, with the podcast. Uh, so hopefully in, the, in this year, we'll, we'll be uh, uh, increasing the output, the annual output. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not to put a number on it, but maybe yeah, we could maybe we could try and pledge to make about four or five episodes this year, perhaps. Hmm. Yeah, we'll see. Okay, but anyway, we should uh, get started with uh, this episode. Um, so uh, this is um, uh, an episode based around an interview that you conducted. Um, so first of all, can I ask you to introduce uh, the interviewee? Yeah, so this is a conversation that took place between uh, myself and uh, Josh Gristale, uh, Joshua Gristale, back in 2019, actually. And can you explain uh, what it is that Josh does? Yeah, so Josh works uh, full-time as um, a webmaster for a company called the Azali Azali Group. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, and this company provides service for elderly care, education, and medicine. Mm. Yeah. Um, but what, what Josh also does, um, well, n- not really on the side. I think this is also takes up a lot of his time too, is he, he runs a website called Accessible Japan. Um, and this is a website that gives uh, maybe would-be tourists and people visiting Japan um, information about uh, ac- accessibility um yeah accessibility information basically and um maybe, maybe we should point out that uh, josh himself is a wheelchair user that's and right so yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, an issue um he has direct experience and and, and uh you know close connection to yeah that's right yeah i know he'll, he'll talk about that in the interview yeah josh um as you say is a wheelchair user himself um and he's been in japan i believe from about 2006 um I, I may have got that year wrong and although he's originally from canada he's um, a japanese citizen now um and yeah he takes a very active role in promoting um accessibility issues um not just with regards to tourism but but more broadly in in society as well mm-hmm. um and can you talk a little bit about how you came to interview him yeah, so this is, I mean, this is a different kind, like I said, this is a different kind of conversation to the one uh, you had with Dareo, um, because this is very much a language teacher, myself, um, reaching out to a, a content specialist, um, somebody with knowledge in a, in a specific area. And this all, this all relates to a course that I, in my current job, um, a tourism English course that I teach, which is very much kind of like an, an ESP course, an, an English for specific purposes course. Um, and in the second part of the semester, we have, um, we kind of turn our attentions more to tourism. Um, the first part of the semester is, is kind of general communicative or discussion-based uh, 
class is about tourism. But when we move into the second semester, it's it's more kind of um, we have a whole unit about tourism issues. And one of those is about accessible tourism and, ex- and accessibility in, in the tourism field. Um, and, yeah, I thought this would be a, a good chance for me. I'm, I'm interested in this topic anyway, but I thought uh, planning a lesson on my own probably wouldn't do it justice, you know. Um, so I thought it would be a good idea to reach out to somebody and, and kind of have a conversation with them and, and get kind of real, real up-to-date information um, about, about the area. Um, so that that was my idea to have a conversation and to try and incorporate some of the information I learned into my lesson materials as well. And, and um, this was originally, this interview was originally recorded, not, not for public consumption, not, not to be kind of released as a podcast. Um, um, this was actually produced and made into a, a paper that I, I wrote kind of like an, a, um, kind of like an abridged interview paper that I wrote for my university's journal. Okay, great. Um, Yeah, so I think obviously this is, like you said, it's a different type of interview, um, but hopefully um, listeners can see, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit more maybe after the interview, but hopefully listeners can can, uh, see how um, this is, uh, can be sort of fully integrated into thinking about uh, content for a CLIL course, for example, um, and like you said, a language teacher and a content specialist um, coming together and talking about a particular area of content. Um, I think that one of the types of, of uh, episodes that we'd like to, um, to, to you know, continue releasing for this, for this podcast series. So, yeah, absolutely. And um, as I understand, there's, there's not a lot of these kind of accounts out there of, of teachers, you know, kind of personally kind of consolidating knowledge. Um, and I think this kind of stands as a good example of, of that kind of account, you know, of, of a teacher reaching beyond, beyond the institution and beyond uh, maybe colleagues in the same institution and kind of trying to actively build their own knowledge and integrate that into their courses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. Um, is there anything else you need to say to set up the interview? Um just one thing that obviously this was this was recorded in 2019 um and a lot of things have happened since 2019 you know so um josh comes back at the end with a with a short kind of update um because perhaps most of the information um is still relevant today um but we just wanted to get josh's kind of um commentary on the current current situation too and what's changed um Obviously, in addition, as I said before, this was this wasn't recorded to be released as a podcast. So, um, I'm personally aware that I kind of overreact a lot during the interview. Um, I so yeah, keep that in mind. And also, the audio quality isn't isn't um, isn't as professional as it should be. I don't think. <laughs> right, but I think I think definitely uh, certainly listenable. So very listenable, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so without uh, further ado, um, we'll now listen to your and Josh's conversation uh, from 2019 and a little bit added on at the end. So, 
So as well as your um, your full time job uh, as a as a webmaster, you also have your own, I guess, a side project. Although you said earlier that this is more than a side project mm -hmm. at the moment, um, could you tell us about? Um, well, firstly, what made you set up? Well, firstly, what is your website mm -hmm. um, and the service related to it? And what made you uh, decide to set it up? Yeah, okay. Um, the website is accessible to Pan, and because this is audio. Uh, I should probably explain that I have a disability. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I am a power wheelchair user. I have cerebral palsy. Um, so uh, around the time I was born, um, there's some sort of problem relating to uh, some sort of brain damage or lack of oxygen. They're not, they're not quite sure what, in my mm -hmm. case, mm -hmm. uh, what it was. Um, but my parents realized that about six months old that I wasn't developing the same way my older sister had. So they took me to the doctors and, and it, it was decided that I probably had uh, cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. um, and so it affects both my arms and my legs. So I've never been able to walk. Um, and I've been using a power wheelchair since I've been about three years old or four years old. Um, so that obviously uh, paints a different perspective on my, my world. And um, and uh, even though I have a disability, I really love to travel and uh, you know having come from Canada to Japan, I'm sure you can guess that I'm an adventurous type of person. And so <laughs> yeah. I like going to different places. Um, but of course, you know, whenever you go somewhere new, there's lots of risks and uh, challenges. And uh, for me, you know, I like to sort of know what I'm getting into. So I found that whenever I went somewhere on vacation, I would always uh, look up information about accessibility. So for example, you know, if the tourist location I want to go to is accessible or not, or the transportation, or how to use the toilets in that country or wherever. Um, so I'd always be looking information up. And um, well, getting back to the bit about uh, citizenship is that I want to give something back. And um, I felt that um, you know, whenever I came to Japan, there was not enough information in English available on accessibility. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, you know, that's something I could do to give back to Japan. Um, because I, I live here, I speak Japanese and English. Um, and I have you know, the authentic uh, perspective of being a person mm -hmm. with a disability. So I started Accessible Japan to um, provide English information on accessibility. Um, and so tourist locations, hotels, etc. So, um, and a lot of just sort of basic information as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of, you know, gotten out of control as we've <laughs> headed yeah. into uh, the Olympics and Paralympics. And, uh, right. and ha have you noticed any, um, well, you, you, you mentioned the, the Paralympics and the Olympics. Have you, have you noticed more users coming to the website, more inquiries? Has there been some like real, real differences that you've noticed? Yeah, there's definitely um, uh, users are growing year over year. Um, uh, and so right now I, I get about uh, maybe 80,000 80, uh, people per year coming okay, to the well, site. Um, okay. So that's definitely grown quite a bit. Um, I mean, the, the contents are also growing, so that definitely helps. But, um, but particularly, I mean, during the Rugby World Cup, it also spiked a bit for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, one of the things is I had somebody who went and used uh, the accessible seating at the Rug, Rug, yeah, World yeah, Cups. Yeah. I wrote a blog for the post, uh, for the website. Um, and so that was really quite a popular one. I think a lot of people were very interested. Um, and um, yeah, and also with the Olympics and Paralympics coming up, I think there's definitely a lot more interest. Um, mm -hmm. There's definitely a lot more interest in Japan as well about um, ex uh, accessible tourism, etc. So um, definitely growing right now. Yeah. And in terms of the website, uh, what, what kind of content or what kind of services do you provide through, through the website, Accessible Japan? Yeah. Well, um, Originally, again, it started off sort of as a blog, so I would just go somewhere and I sort of read that one here, and it was like this. Um, but then, you know, because I had a contact form on the website, I get a lot of questions, and because of that, there would be things that I hadn't thought of before. Mm. Um, I think it's easy to for people who are not disabled as well to think that 
you know, people who are disabled, they are in a wheelchair. And that was actually my perspective as well. Right. So I thought of, you know, people needing accessible information were people in electric wheelchairs like myself. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd always sort of write from that perspective, but I get a lot of uh, questions about, for example, like, you know, I want to bring my guide dog to Japan. How do mm -hmm. I do that? Yeah. Or um, yeah. That can I use Jap or American Sign Language in Japan? And so I get these questions that, oh, well, I've never thought about that. And I guess obviously there's a need for that. So I should add that to the website. So I start to have this uh, sort of general accessibility information mm -hmm. um, section of the website. Right. Um, but also on top of that, um, there's a couple of major issues right now. For one, one is uh, the hotels are in very uh, high demand but low supply. Mm, um, yes, there are yeah. very, very few accessible rooms at hotels. Yeah. Um, and so I've tried to, and also the information is not really available readily on a lot of hotel websites. So I've sort of made a database of hotels with accessible rooms, yeah. um, as well as going to yeah, tourist locations and writing about what the accessibility is like there. Um, and also, um, sort of, uh, what else? Uh, there's a tours section, so accessible tours that are available mm -hmm. that I can show, uh, introduce mm -hmm. people to, okay. um, and a forum for people to ask questions. Uh, right. And I can sort of, you know, because, you know, maybe it might not be a major place that they want to go to. Yeah. Uh, this morning yeah. I was actually asked about um, the loop bus in Kyoto okay. and whether it's accessible or not. Right. And so right. I ended up, you know, calling the company and it apparently was accessible, but they've shut down the line now. Oh. So, <laughs> so um, you know, I look at that information out there. So other people will be able to see that as well. Yeah. And, um, and what's the, um, or what has been the general process for you? Um, for example, if you visit a place and you find that there are some, some issues, mm -hmm. is, do, you, do you speak directly to the company um, at that point? Or, or do, you, do you share the information on your website or, um, or both? A little bit of both, I think. Uh, I mean, especially starting off, I, you know, I didn't really have any you know, cloaked or anything like that. So it would just be some, you know, some guy just saying, you know, you should do this or whatever, and then they'd probably, you know, okay, whatever. Um, but, you know, I, now I've sort of gotten to a bit more a place where people know who I am and they will um, uh, take input more seriously. Uh, but for the most part, um, what I do is I sort of just basically describe what the accessibility is like at that yeah. location. Because yeah. um, a lot of people, they already sort of know what, what the place is about because they look at other websites, et cetera, and just want to know if it's successful or not. Um, and particularly, I think the biggest challenge for me when I started was, you know, I was again looking from my own perspective, um, but I try to be a bit more broad now. And basically just to describe the accessibility as it is. Um, for example, you know, some things for me as a power wheelchair user I can't do, um, but if you're, I just maybe if you use a cane, yeah. um, then it's yeah. possible for you to do. Right. So if I would say that's not accessible, then the person with the cane might think, oh, I shouldn't bother going there, but even though yeah, they are fine, yeah. it's fine for them. So I can't really say this is accessible or this is not accessible because everybody's needs are different. Um, so basically I just describe, you know, um, these are some potential challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, these are uh, what's available. Um, you know, for example, if there's maybe no accessible toilet on the site, uh, you might want to use the yeah. one at the, at the station before you go. Or just, just at least know that there isn't one available or right. something like that. So. Yeah. And you've um, obviously, uh, tourists coming to Japan have used your services and um, do you get a lot of feedback from from the tourists after their visit to say that information was was exactly how you described or there's been some changes or yeah no I've, I've had uh, both I've had some people um, say you know let me know that uh, this has changed or something, right, which is right, great yeah. for me because yeah. I'm doing the website by myself basically so if I don't go back again I won't know of any changes yeah, um, yeah I see uh, yeah. I, I actually yeah. for example Meiji Shrine I was there and I'd written that, you know, there's just a long gravel path, there's nothing mm, smooth to walk yeah, on. Yeah. And I happened to go back for a different reason 
and they put in a, a walking path on there. Oh, okay. So again, like if I hadn't gone back, I would have just assumed it was like that the whole time. Yes, yeah. Um, so you know, I get some uh, updated information from people as well. Um, I've also had some, you know, very encouraging uh, remarks that you know, like um, that it was, you know, essential that you know if they didn't have that, then they probably would, have, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, had a lot more of a difficult time. Uh, but also some people who. Uh, were under the impression that they couldn't go to Japan mm. um, because they figured that Japan was not accessible. Right. Um, yeah. And so they said that, you know, they were thinking about it, but then they are probably go, but then they found the website and that encouraged them to, to take the step and to go to Japan. Yeah, some, some countries and locations are perhaps more, uh, I guess, aware or proactive about accessibility than others. Mm. Um, what's the position like in Japan and um, how has Japan been successful at addressing these issues? and what kind of innovations have mm-hmm. there been in Japan, and where could more be done? Right. So there's a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that. Um, I, well, when we think about accessible tourism, there's a supply chain. Um, some parts of that Japan is doing really well. Some parts it's lagging behind. It needs okay. some extra boosting. Um, something that's been done really well is um, just public transportation. Mm, yeah. um, it's actually way easier to get around you know, on public transportation in. Tokyo than it is maybe in Toronto. Okay. Um, okay. Obviously, the snow has some part to do with it in Toronto, but uh, for example, um, the TTC, which is the subway in Toronto, yeah. uh, for years they've been saying, we're going to make it accessible, we're going to make it accessible. And even now, only half of the stations are accessible. Oh, um, okay. Whereas in Japan, when I first came back in 2000, I would say that maybe 30% of the stations in Tokyo were accessible. Yeah. But now over 95% of the stations are accessible. Right. And the uh, uh, <laughs> the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure, Tourism, and Transportation? Yeah. Transportation and Tourism. Right. Yeah. MLI. <laughs> yeah. Um, they, uh, um, they have a requirement now that for any station that uses, that has over 3,000 daily visitors, mm-hmm. must be accessible. Right. Um, right. So in Tokyo, yeah. that's almost all yes, stations, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and so, because of that, over 95% of the stations in Tokyo are mm. now wheelchair accessible. Right. So, I, okay. whenever I go out somewhere, I don't really need to think, yeah. is the place yeah. I'm going to, is I'm not going to be able to get off at that station. Yeah. I, I sort of can assume, and now I'm actually surprised when I can't. Um, so, that area has been done really well, and that's because um, there's some you know laws that were put into place mm. back uh, before 2000 even, right. um, okay. and it was about access to transportation. Uh, and so, because of that, it's, it's fairly easy to get around anywhere. Yeah. Um, and Unfortunately, how, how, sorry. Was yeah. was there times in the past where you couldn't get off at a station? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, really. The first time I came, um, there were many times where uh, I maybe have to get off the station early, and then walk the rest of the way. Wow. Um, wow. Or sometimes even like, uh, for example, the station that the place I was staying at uh, is nearest to, they didn't have an elevator to get up to the ticket booth, mm-hmm. but they, they wanted to get up to the platform. So if you get into the station, you yeah. have an elevator. But yeah. the problem was that uh, the station, there's a shopping mall underneath it. Um, so if you can use the shopping mall elevator, you mm-hmm. can get to the station and then you can take the elevator up to the platform. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, the shopping mall closes at 8 p.m. Right, okay. And it opens at 10 a.m. So yeah. Yeah. I can only use the station between 10 and 8 p.m. I see. Or 10 a.m. Yeah. and 8 p.m. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'd have to make sure I, you know, I was, back home before it began, right, right. have problems. <laughs> um, and uh, and there would be other times, even like, you know, at Akihabara Station, where um, the only elevator available was one that was used for, um, f- 
for the, for the station itself. So like mm. a um, industrial elevator. I see. Yes. Um, so I was, able, I was able to use it, but you know I had to go through through the the back of the station yeah. through the office, right. and then down and they let you off of the the garbage dump area of the station. So, <laughs> it's not so it really was very pleasant. <laughs> but you know there's sort of workarounds. So, but yeah, there are many times where there's places I just couldn't go. Um, so, but every time I came back, it was the progress was incremental, and you could definitely see the changes. Yeah. Uh, which was you know one of the reasons why I thought, oh, you know, Japan is you know really taking this seriously. So transportation is really good. Okay. Um, unfortunately, going back to tourism, yeah. um, it, Japan has sort of been slow to catch on to tourism in in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was they didn't even actually have the uh, tourism association until I think it was two thousand six or something. Yeah, it's like f- relatively new. Yeah. So and then um, yeah. and and. At that point, I think it was only even, uh, I think there was only 30 people or something in the office or something like that, for my friend. Um, yeah. And right now it's going up to 300 people. And wow. it's, it's, yeah. it's becoming, uh, you know, the government is thinking, you know, as the population ages and the working population decreases, yeah. they need a way to, decrease, or to increase the GDP. So one of the possible easy ways to do that is to increase tourism. Tourism, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So because of that, they've uh, been putting a lot more thought into that. But, um, so while the transportation has was improving, uh, things like hotels um, and access to tourist locations uh, didn't really start going until more recently. Mm, okay. um, yeah. So for hotels, they did have some ru- uh, laws and rules about it. But the, the way of thinking was a bit more of um, the people with disabilities don't travel much. People, you know, mm-hmm. if they make an accessible room, they're just going to lose money on it yeah. um, because yeah. nobody's going to stay there right. and it's always vacant. And so that, that's a strong image that uh, that's still exists to this day, I think. Um, and so because of that, there aren't many rooms that are made. And also the requirements for the law were that uh, any hotel with less than 50 rooms uh, does not re- is not required to have an accessible room. Ah. Uh, anything above 50 rooms is required only to have one accessible room. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, that is fine for you up for up to 100 rooms, but then as maybe you get up to a hotel with 300 rooms, it's still only legally required to have yeah. one accessible room. Yeah. Uh, and so most hotels, they figure you know, it's not gonna make any money. So they, they don't want to go above and beyond and they'll, they'll just do what the requirements of the law are. And uh, you know, usually the hotel room itself is uh, the standard type room on the, on like the second floor yeah. with a view yeah. of the next door building or something like right. that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, in that area, there's a real lack, and they're really feeling pinched now before the Olympics and Paralympics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Other countries like the States, uh, they have a number of requirements for the accessible rooms, for example. Uh, 3% of the rooms have to be, um, in the States, 3% of the rooms have to be accessible for people with physical disabilities. And on top of that, I think another 5% have to be accessible for people with um, hearing disabilities or yeah, disabilities. So you get a lot more rooms and also with the ADA, the Accessible Americans with Disabilities Act, they have, um, you, you can, uh, you're, allowed, you're supposed to have access to all types of rooms. Okay. So in Japan, you know, so for example, if you go to a regular, any hotel, you'll have like a standard room, a deluxe room, executive room, a suite or something like that. Yeah. Whereas, uh, so in Japan, generally you only have one option. Right. Whereas yeah. in the States, they'll have, um, There'll be an accessible standard room, accessible deluxe room, accessible st- uh, executive room, and really? accessible suite. Wow. Uh, so they're all required okay. to have yeah. those. Um, so I think that's something the Japan's really lacking in. Um, for tour sites, there's been a lot more, definitely a big improvement. Um, I think for well, for temples and shrines, particularly the bigger ones, mm-hmm. like uh, Sensoji and Asakusa and uh, Eiji Jingu, um, 
there's been a lot of uh, you know increased accessibility, and I think a lot of that actually has to do with not just um, tourism, mm -hmm. but um, because you know the aging population. And yeah, thing. yeah. Um, yeah. I was in Miyazaki, and it's not a very big place, and uh, and um, you know I wouldn't have expected much accessibility there. Yeah, I went yeah, to the, yeah. the main shrine there, and um, but they had ramps, and the, the reason was is because they had a, a wedding on, mm. and so they wanted to their the grandparents to be able to come, uh, and they had two right. grandparents in wheelchairs, and so they put slopes and ramps in yeah. for that reason. Yeah. So I think that's you know one of the reasons things are changing. But yeah. so there so there seems to be an assumption that people with mobility issues won't travel in the first place. Mm. Um, do you, do you feel that 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 sense exists that we're not, we're not going to provide these rooms because people with mobilities tend not to travel. Is that, is that it's, a, it's sort of a chicken and egg thing. Yeah, I think. yeah, um, yeah. Even when I grew up in back in Canada, um, I went to a chiropractor and uh, family friends, and they had a ramp, but it was uh, an attachable ramp, so they only put it out when you know I, I was yeah. going to come, right. and so uh, my mother asked you know the lady at the front desk, you know, why don't you just leave it out? It's like, oh, we don't get many people with disabilities. Mm. The thing is, you know, if you're someone with a disability and you see a step into a place, yeah. you don't necessarily assume that there's a ramp. Right. And, okay. yeah, um, yeah, that's interesting. You yeah. don't want to ask yeah. all the time because, you know, sorry, we don't have one, sorry, we don't have one. And you get all this re rejection and it's sort of a little bit like, you know, yeah. you know yeah. I, I'd rather, um, you know, not bother asking. So so the people stop asking and then people inside the building think, oh, well, nobody's, nobody's just coming, so there's no mm. reason to have it. Mm. So, I mean, it's sort of a... a vicious circle kind of thing yeah um, yeah, yeah. And, and so I think you know definitely there is still a part of that in um, society here um, I was actually at a presentation yesterday and somebody from uh, ANA the airline yeah uh, they're talking about the number of uh, you know there's maybe six some, six or some percent people who are registered with as a, having a disability in Japan but of the customers only I think zero point Five percent, roughly, were uh, people with disabilities. Of the entire uh, of their customers, yeah. Customers, right? Um, so that doesn't, you know, necessarily add up to the number of total population. But then they compared it to Lufthansa and some other foreign mm -hmm. um, airlines, and those airlines would have maybe one point five percent of their customers right. uh, with disabilities. So the the rate of disabilities is equal throughout the world, but um, the number of people actually taking advantage of it and um, you know, yeah. there's, the, the person who worked at ANA was commenting that, you know, he felt that that was a part of uh, Japanese culture and that um, people don't want, like to make uh, yeah, a nuisance for themselves. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, you know, with the elderly people, they, you know, you know, it's going to be a lot of extra work and they don't want to make extra work, so I'll just not bother see, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, um, so yeah. I think, and again, so because then there's not the, the customer base there, so yeah. the, the places don't feel like they need to, you know, improve or whatever, so it's sort of, yeah, right. it's just circling that yeah. way. And you you also mentioned in in the states they have a um, they have different classes of hotel room that are all accessible. Um, is is that because they they are kind of they're built with universal principles in mind to begin with, rather than trying to adapt what they already have? Um, is, is, there, is there a difference in approach? I think there's really a different difference in culture for sure. Like in in the states, there's much a lot more about you know rights the people people's rights and uh right to access and um and and there's also just a lot more history behind it the yeah. ada's yeah. been around for 30 years i want to say um so i think at first it probably wasn't as good as as it is now yeah uh, and i think in general a lot of the laws apply uh for any new hotel or anytime right. you're doing renovations you know 
So up until you point your renovations, you're allowed to be as you are kind of thing. But I think just, you know, for the time, things have, you know, new buildings have been built and renovations have been done so that the accessibility has increased. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, also, yeah, the fear of litigation or whatever in the States is much higher than it is okay. uh, yeah. in, in yeah. Japan, whereas people here would be like, oh, I can't do it, so I'm um, all too bad. Oh, well, thanks anyways. But, um, and also, yeah, the Japanese laws now, like, they're, they're being a bit more anti-discriminatory for people against people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no real bite to it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, in the States, you can get sued for not following the law, right? Yeah. Whereas in Japan, these, uh, the laws are more guidelines. And uh, so, for example, for the one uh, the law against discrimination against people with disabilities, uh, if you felt that you've been discriminated against, you can go to City Hall and make a complaint, and they'll sort of act as an, uh, a mediator between the two. Okay. Uh, and the the store, the hotel, or wherever it is, uh, they are required to provide uh, appropriate accommodation, um, but there's no real definition of what that is. Yeah. Um, and you know, if they, you know, they could say, well, financially, we can't do it. And mm -hmm. so that's sort of the end of that kind of thing. I see, and so yeah. you know, it was brought up, but there's no real. Well, if you don't do this, you're going to get fined, you know, yes, five hundred thousand yeah, dollars or something yeah. like that. Um, so there's, you know, less of an incentive that way. Um, so I think that's sort of somewhat the reason why things are yeah. lagging behind a bit. That's an interesting term. Uh, yeah, I've heard that before. Appropriate accommodation, and this is something I'm familiar with in terms of education. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, what, what does it really mean? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's exactly. an ambiguous term. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Generally speaking, um, what, what's your what's your definition of accessible tourism? Um, I guess we've already kind of unpacked what it kind of entails, but right. is there a general definition that you tend to tell people? Yeah, the term, there's two main terms that are used, uh, actually, well, sort of a third. In, in Japan, they say universal uh, tourism, which right. is sort of a okay. Japanese phrase that they meant. Yeah. Taking yeah. universal design mm -hmm. and tourism, putting it together and becoming universal, universal tourism. tourism right. But yeah. and it's, it, I like the idea, but it doesn't really, uh, you know, everybody quickly grasp sort of means. Yeah, um, yeah. So accessible tourism is very obvious, but there's another one that's quite uh, used quite often is tourism for all. Mm, and I okay. think that's probably the best option. Yeah, um, yeah. Because what it is saying is that, you know, first of all, the tourism is for everybody, but also um, it, it encompasses uh, all aspects of society and culture and um, abilities. Um, accessible tourism, I think, it gets a little bit too Mm, hold into like accessible so disability yes, so yes, that, that's okay. the, the main image of that so which is important but then um, it sort of becomes its own unique thing and I think mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. also not very good as well um, uh, because it's important to remember that you know, people with disabilities are sort of they're just like everybody else that wants mm -hmm. to go on vacation you know yes, uh, yes, their interests yeah. and needs and, and abilities are, are going to be different there but like, for example you know I some people might want to come and go to an art gallery yeah. Whereas other people want to come to a sporting event, so they both maybe have a disability, but their interests are very different, mm -hmm. uh, so their needs are very different as well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I would say universal or tourism or accessible tourism or tourism for all is um, is ensuring that all parts of the supply tourism supply chain mm -hmm. uh, can be accessed by everyone, basically. Um, yeah. So there are people, anyway, and, and there's different options for people who want to have you know the safety of an accessible only tour option, yeah. uh, where there's yeah. other people who want to do as much as possible like everybody else um, and independently go around, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so tourism for all are, uh, is, is basically um, ensuring that there are no 
unnecessary roadblocks to travel. Yeah. For example, in, in Japan right now, uh, a lot of the highway buses or the tourist uh, sightseeing buses, they have steps into the, the, the bus. Yeah. And so because of that, that sort of blocks off a, a large part of the population who right. like to use right. that product. Okay. Um, so making sure that those are, you know, if they had a bus that was able to take somebody in a wheelchair on it, then that would, you know, open up the, the, the tourist option to that person as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Something, a question that I was going to ask earlier, but do you think that there's an assumption, I'm not sure by who exactly, but there's an assumption that um, people with disabilities kind of need to have, need to be accommodated for, but actually most people would prefer that things are just open for everyone in the first place. So yeah. Yeah. special changes don't need to be made. Exactly. I think um, the misconception, up until now, uh, the idea of disability has been there's different models. Mm -hmm. The first, the original, up until now, the model has been the uh, medical model of disability, yeah. Yeah. which means that um, the reason I can't access this store is because I have a disability. So it's putting the emphasis on me. Right. I, yes. I'm the problem. Yeah. I, or my disability is the problem, yeah. not the store. Okay. Um, yeah. If I didn't have a disability, I could get into the store. Yeah. Um, that's sort of the medical model. Yeah. Whereas the new one now is a societal model. So it's because the store built a step that means that everybody can't get in. Only some people can get in. Okay. So uh, it, removing those societal barriers will make it accessible for everyone. So there's not necessarily, you know, a need to. Um, if if in the first place people have been thinking in that manner, then they wouldn't necessarily have made a step. They might have made a ramp in the first place because everybody yeah. can use that. Um, yeah. Or, um, you know, or we said that uh, seating is not wide enough for a wheelchair to go in. So if they, from the first place they had done that, yeah. then there wouldn't have been an issue. So I think it's sort of this weird uh, issue where, you know, business, businesses can justify that, well, it's going to be very expensive for, for us mm -hmm. to renovate. But, you know, in reality, if, they, if, if from the beginning they had been thinking about everybody, yes. then they wouldn't yeah. have the need to renovate later. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's an unfortunate uh, situation that we're in now. So yeah. um, I, I think it's, it's, it'd be nice to force everybody to change, but, yeah. Um, yeah. but I think you know, it's going to be a, a bit of a slower change with you know, anything new must be universal, et cetera. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think definitely that uh, if things had been made with everybody in mind in the first place, then that would have saved a lot of money in the long run. Yeah. Um, and you know, for also potential income for those businesses yeah. uh, from those customers. What, what I'm finding with just the word accessibility is it, it, it's before this interview um, I had a very narrow idea of what accessible tourism is but actually it, it relates to all manner of things mm -hmm. um, do you think that it's more of an, an attitude that people not, not so much an attitude but a perspective people need to learn maybe from very early on in education that um, just thinking about um, Accessibility, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of it's more of a perspective that you need to learn to to see. Because as a as a currently able-bodied person, mm -hmm. it's very easy to kind of overlook mm -hmm. things. And when you when you open your eyes, you start to realize. And people are yeah, humans are very nearsighted. I think so. Yeah. Um, I, I like how you said there that you know a currently able-bodied yeah, person. Yeah. You yeah, know yeah. You, you don't know if you could, might have an accident. Exactly. Or yeah. Become yeah. disabled or yeah. uh, or if you're lucky, then uh, you will gradually lose your abilities as you get older. Yeah. Uh, and in which case you might end up having very similar needs to yeah. myself. Sure. Um, yeah. 
um, and I say you're lucky because that, that's the good way to to exit the world. But um, um, yeah, I think that uh, my education is one of the most vital aspects. I think um, even going back to probably what you're intending uh, back to before that even, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's important to have uh, exposure to uh, my diversity and disability um, yeah. from a very young age. Yeah. Uh, I think that's something that Japan could definitely improve on. Um, okay. Uh, right now, there's still segregation in schools. Um, yeah. So up until yeah. about uh, elementary school, people all go to the same school. And then that, even before that, recently, until recently, it wasn't like that. Mm. But uh, more recently, it's been a bit more that you might up until you know public school or maybe uh, sorry, sorry, uh, elementary school, um, and maybe up until middle school, yeah. people can go to that. But I think uh, the bigger challenge, I think, is that in Canada, then people would also go to the same uh, the same um, uh, high school as well, right. um, because you in Canada the system is you go to your local high school. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas in Japan, you're more likely to write an exam and go to a school that you have an interest in. Right. Um, so it might not necessarily be close to you. It might be on the other side of town, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because of, you know, I want to go to this future career, so I'm going to go to this school that's good at that mm -hmm. field. That's right. Um, yeah. And so because of that, not all of those schools are accessible and people with disabilities end up going to special schools for people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And it might even just be because of a physical requirement. And so even though, you know, they don't need to go to a special school, they end up going to a special school, which makes it more difficult for them to get yes. into university. Yeah. I see. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, more uh, inclusion in education system will help people, others who are in this educational system to realize that there are people with different abilities, different needs. Yeah, uh, I see. Yeah. Uh, and so because of that, when they see those things, that it would sort of become more natural mm -hmm. to include that into your type of thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're thinking about, oh, well, what about these type of people, what about these type of people, then you're, you are more likely to be inclusive or universal in your design of, or, your, or in your future career. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's definitely, I think, where the roots go back to, I and mean, that'll probably take a lot more time to change. But um, Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. But in, in education, for example, so if you're going to the tourism industry, um, I think the most important aspect of the education process there um, is that a that well, people with special needs exist, of course, but uh, on top of that, that it is uh, economically viable and responsible to uh, include everyone. Mm. You know, you want to make your market as big as possible. You don't want to, yes, yeah, unless you're yeah. uh, specifically aiming for some sort of niche market. Then, in general, most places want to have as wide of a market base as possible, so mm. that more they can bring in more customers. So. I think uh, if in education in, in that um, stage, uh, people are more likely as they move up the ranks of their future jobs, they'll think, oh, well, we should have these type of rooms or we should have uh, in our, newer, our new uh, tour site, we should make sure that we have a, yeah. an option for everybody to be able to use that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think yeah, it's definitely important to all aspects of level yeah. education. Yeah. People tend to travel with, with often an, an assistant or mm -hmm. a helper. Mm -hmm. and. That means more people. Uh, do you do you happen to know any kind of details about how how it's been proven? Yeah, there's um, to be a benefit. Yeah, there's been um, uh, well, first of all, from personal experience, um, when I went back to Canada recently, uh, you know, visit my family. Normally, I would have just gone back by myself. Yeah. Uh, but because I can't do that, um, I went. I had to buy two plane tickets. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and the you know, and the plane wasn't full, so that meant that they mm -hmm. got an extra sale because I mm -hmm. went back home. Um, and then um, when I was in Canada, my, my helper, he, my attendant, he uh, you know, bought about four or $500 worth of Omega at the airport wow. to bring back 
yeah. uh, to, within Japan. Yeah. Um, so just because I went to go visit my family, you know, the economic footprint was larger than if uh, you know I just come back on my own. Um, but on sort of more um, general uh, data, there's been a lot of research in the states and particularly in uh, in the UK with Visit Britain, uh, or Visit England, sorry. Um, they've had some data that you know uh, people with disabilities tend to travel with maybe on average two companions mm -hmm. um, as well as they spend more time at their location yeah uh, I think there's multiple reasons for that one of them is that you know uh, just getting to their destination can be tiring in yes. itself yeah. uh, and you need some time to recover but also because of the extra needs in transportation getting around etc you can't maybe do uh, all the your your things on your bucket list uh, at the same pace that somebody mm -hmm. else can. So you might end up staying an extra two or three days because um, you know you just need that extra time. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so you have extra yeah. time that you're there and you have more people. Uh, and so that because of that, um, you know, you're leaving more, you're using more money at that location, which yes. is beneficial yeah. for their economy. Yeah. Um, in England, they also have, not for tourism, but just in, in general, they have a concept called the purple pound. Uh, and yeah, it's, for, it's the economic yeah. uh, benefits of being accessible, um, and, and on top of the you know logistics of things, there, there's also the uh, emotional aspect of that. In mm -hmm. that, um, you know, a lot of times you know people have brand loyalty, right? You know, so mm -hmm. um, so they want to they like this company because they're, they're nice about it, so whatever. Or yeah. they, if some if they have a bad experience at some company, then they won't ever go back there, whatever. Yeah. Um, but there's also the amplifying effect in that you know if I go to uh, some company A, and I have a very very bad experience, or they don't put any thought into accessibility, and I tell my friends and my family about that. Mm. My friends and family are more likely to not use that store because mm. of that. Okay. Whereas if I have a good experience somewhere else, they're more likely to use that. So there's a lot more of an amplifying effect that has a you know greater, mm. uh, probably unseen yeah. uh, effect on the, the market oh, as well. Interesting. Yeah, never considered that really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when my, my my family when we were younger, when whenever we chose a destination, we were going to go for yeah. vacation. It was always you know, well, can Josh go there as well? Right. You know, and yeah. we chose yeah. we choose hotels that have an accessible room. Yeah. We choose yeah. destinations that I would be able to enjoy the majority of. So because of my disability, my family chose made decisions mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. on where we would go, and so the companies and the locations that hadn't put any infrastructure in for accessibility yeah. end up losing out on our, yeah, yeah, exactly, our uh, yeah. spending money. Yeah. So. And, and have you found that some companies have been better than others? In, is, there a common, um, is there a trend for some to be a lot more proactive? Than yeah, actually, well, there, there have, um, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, yeah. but in Japan anyways, but um, there's been sort of two cases I can think of right now. One is uh, Toyo Queen, mm -hmm. uh, which is a popular business chain of hotels which okay. is, totally so you, yeah. yeah so you yeah. can stay for maybe under each of my yeah. kind yeah. of thing yeah. um, and by law they were required to have an accessible room but uh, the previous president really didn't like that so basically a couple times he did some legal type things where he would for the inspection time he'd make an accessible room uh, but then as soon as the inspection right. was passed he would return it to a normal room right um, etc oh. and they, he got caught yeah um, and then his daughter ended up taking over and she was much more focused on inclusion. So okay. now, because of that, uh, you know, there's still a lot of bashing from the media about you know the way he handled things. Yeah. And so yeah. now they put in a lot of emphasis on making accessible rooms at all of their hotels, right. um, as well as uh, you know hiring uh, only female staff and and uh, a lot more diversity in the way they handle things. Mm. And because of that, their uh, their bottom line has gone up. 
So they've become more profitable since they've become more inclusive. Right, uh, another one is Fuji Lake Hotel. Uh -huh. um, they put a lot, as the bubble was ending, um, you know, they were starting to lose customers more and more. And so they thought, you know, we need to do something to sort yeah. of stand out. And so they decided that, you know, what we want to make, you know, an accessible uh, uh, resort. So, and uh, onsen. And so they end up, over a number of years, they now have 30% of their rooms are accessible now, oh, which right. is okay. way, way, way above yeah. requirements. Yeah. Uh, and because of that, um, they have you know, a fairly good customer base and they found that uh, the repeat customers of people with disabilities are higher than re uh, repeat customers for people without oh, disabilities. Right. Interesting. Uh, okay. So because of you know, their accommodations, they're, you know, they're having repeat customers, which is something that most hotels want because yeah. Yeah. You know, it's sort of more steady income. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as well as the occupancy rate of those rooms is higher mm. than that of the regular rooms as mm. well. Uh, so it's sort of destroying the idea of, you know, that people, if you make an accessible room, yeah. nobody will ever use it yeah, and they'll just lose money yeah, on it. So. Yeah. yeah. And that, that links to what you were saying about the emotional side of things mm. that people will keep going back if they, if they trust a, mm. a company like uh, Fuji Lake. Yeah. And so, yeah. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. And talking about communication, so I guess what you were saying just then relates to communication. So something I find, at least, that permeates kind of through all areas of tourism in Japan, and I guess it's getting better, is, is the idea that um, some information is not fully communicated mm. to different groups of people. And even today, I still see it myself when I go to Narita Airport and one of the train lines is down. The the information is presented in Japanese first off, mm. and then they kind. It seems like they're very kind of not prepared to get the the information ready afterwards, mm. and the information they do give is very basic information. Mm. Um, so yeah, could you tell me how this kind of relates to accessibility, where where you'll have more information provided in Japanese and then very basic or mm. or even withheld information in in another language? Yeah, um, it's definitely. A universal thing, but um, so you have a lot of information in Japanese and, and very little in English, and even more so with regards with accessibility. Um, so a lot of times, uh, whenever I look up any accessibility information, I almost always just look at the Japanese site. Yeah. Um, yeah. Out of curiosity, I'll compare it to the English site. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, and sometimes a lot of times uh, in the uh, FAQ of a website, whatever they, they will often put, you know, is it accessible <laughs> on the Japanese site? But that doesn't get mm. translated over to the English okay, site. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't really know the reason for that. Mm. Um, either that uh, maybe they don't have the, the fees to pay the translator, so mm. they only do the basic stuff. Or, yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Or if they don't figure uh, out that's not needed because nobody you know wheelchair comes anyway. Yeah. Or then yeah. maybe somebody wouldn't travel all the way from another country to Japan in a wheelchair. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I I would assume that it's more of a, a budget reason that they're doing it, but um, yes. Yeah. Uh, but also that happens a lot with the tourist locations, but um, also with uh, hotels, uh, which is definitely a huge mm -hmm. thing for people mm -hmm. who want to come visit Japan because they yeah. need a place to stay, right? So um, a lot of times uh, things are, are getting better, um, but you'll still see times sometimes where uh, the Japanese website of a hotel will have information in Japanese about the accessible room, but if you change it to the, the, same, the same hotel, but if you look at the English side, then they won't have any information uh, yes, about the room. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, um, sort of with regards to communication, um, is, is the use of words. Uh, mm -hmm. um, for example, I think quite frequently, or almost all people uh, searching in English for something like that would probably look for an accessible room. Yes, or, yeah, um, yeah. 
something along those terms. Whereas in Japan, so maybe if they do put it on the English side as well, they'll use the room barrier-free room, which is a, a Japanese term. Mm, uh, it's, yeah, right, it's, yeah. it's, originally, it's originally a European term, but it's sort of more used in academic circles as opposed to everyday life. Okay, okay. Um, and, but it sort of got picked up in Japan and sort of proliferated to sort of everyday life. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's a huge communication error. But, so I, I knew somebody who was looking for an accessible room, and he said that it took him four or five hotels uh, looking at four or five hotel uh, websites before he realized that the universal room mm. meant accessible room. Ah. He thought that sort of like some sort of theme or something, you know, like, you know, a king size room or a deluxe room or a universal yes. room. Yeah, right. So he thought that sort of like the, yeah, 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 sort of that. <laughs> yeah. So he didn't realize that, you know, that that meant accessible room. So I think, you know, the general like, communication is a huge uh, problem. I think so many people just want that information. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, there's, um, I think Ewan's guide in the UK as well. They had some yearly reports, and, and one of the reports is that something like 92% of the people who have disabilities, before they go to a place they don't know about, they'll look up whether there's yes, something accessible. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. more than half the people, if there's no information, they won't take the risk to go mm-hmm. because you know they don't want to go and just be disappointed. Yes, yeah. Um, so yeah. they'll choose a place that's safe. Um, so having information on websites, you know, is essential for tourists with special needs yeah. to come to Japan. Yeah. Yeah. And I think on your website you, you have a, a glossary of, of English to Japanese terms mm-hmm. as well, I've noticed. And yeah, maybe as, as an English teacher, this is something that I'm very interested mm-hmm. in, is the language around um, accessibility. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, yeah, barrier-free is being something that is English, sounds English, but it doesn't really have a, much of a usage in, in English-speaking countries. Yeah. Um, so what, what kind of term, uh, into thinking about learners, uh, English learners, what kind of terms or phrases would would you introduce to, to the students? Yeah, um, well, so the languages as well, sort of a, sort of a collaborate, collaboration of people uh, you know, asking questions like, how do I say this in Japanese? Yes, um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think uh, for the students, you know, there's a lot of, you know, uh, really specific disability-related terms, but... For the most part, those things are kind of private, so yeah. people yeah. not necessarily, you know, for example, cerebral palsy, no, no se mahi. There's mm. there's no real reason to know, you know, or even ask why, you know, yes. there's, to yeah. ask this kind of question. Yeah. But there are things like, for example, uh, ramp. So mm-hmm. a ramp in Japanese they say slope, right. so slope. Right. But in English, the connotation is like a sloping. It's a sort of a more natural occurring. Yeah, I see. Image yeah. as opposed or to a ramp. Ski slope. Or yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a sloping road or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Whereas uh, you know, a ramp is you know definitely a man-made object yes, that yeah, you a- yeah. attach or it's permanently attached to something. Yeah. Um, so that's something that I think that uh, I, I've heard from other people that they had trouble communicating mm-hmm. with station staff about you know that they want. Yes. Yeah. Can you please put the portable ramp? Right. Yeah. I, you know, I'm especially sure, yeah. in Japan with the R and L challenges, they made, <laughs> they, they made portable lamp. So a lot of people have a challenge with that as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, it's a two-way street. I think you know people who are planning to visit Japan from other countries, you know, just know that barrier-free is you know a key word to learn here. Um, yeah. Yeah. And people in Japan as well, to, you know, think about the word accessible. Um, afterwards, yeah. So you know, accessible room or uh, there's another one. Uh, it's a multi-purpose toilet or right. uh, yeah. maybe yeah. the witness said it's a. Disabled toilet. Uh, so, but the disability is also another word. I think you yeah. know, shogai was in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or shogai is you know disabled person. Um, so those, those kind of words are you know important. Um, yeah. 
a lot of times people still use the word handicap, which mm-hmm. um, in Japan is handi no hitoto, that's a handi. Which it's sort of yeah. translated for a long time ago, sort of is kept going here without the maybe negative connotations that yes, would have yeah, in other yeah, parts of the world. Yeah. So some people might be you know, offended and the poor yeah. person who's using it here doesn't know why they yeah. use it, says something wrong. Or, yeah. So it seems like there's a lot of terms available and there's a lot of chances for, it doesn't seem that we can agree on yeah, yeah exactly. It yeah. seems like it would be a good chance to yeah, so it's a good opportunity to learn. I think, especially with the Olympics and Paralympics coming yeah, up, yeah. I think m- m- maybe focusing less on the people and disabilities <coughs> and more focusing on uh, you know infrastructure. So you know those uh, knowing how to say what accessible toilet or yeah. knowing to say how to say a ramp or elevator um, or um, you know accessible room, yeah. Um, yeah. as well as you know just also maybe basic you know. Uh, mobility aids like a wheelchair mm-hmm. or electric wheelchair. Yes. Yeah, um, so yeah. a lot of times people yeah, have trouble with those when it's right, well, right. especially I mean, especially a manual wheelchair and a power wheelchair or electric wheelchair. Um, I think in Japan there's again because of the idea of people with disabilities tends to be of somebody being pushed around in mm-hmm. a hospital type wheelchair. Mm, yes. And <coughs> not so much person moving independently in a power wheelchair. I see, yeah. Um, yeah and because yeah. of that, um, you know, you say you're in a wheelchair, and they oh, we can lift that up, whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas this wheelchair weighs 130 kilograms, yeah. plus myself. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's not, the, the way of handling it is very different. Or maybe in the limousine buses going to the airport, uh, for the most part, you know, they can just fold and store a regular mm-hmm. manual wheelchair underneath right. uh, and help the person inside. Whereas somebody in a power wheelchair, their needs are very, very different. Uh, they'll need a lift mm-hmm. on the side of the bus, etc. Yeah, yeah. uh, and they usually can't walk at all. Um, yeah. So I think those kind of uh, you know mobility aids, etc., yeah. uh, as well as sort of basic uh, accessible components are, are definitely important to have. Yeah. Yeah. Outside of language, mm-hmm. um, so that obviously teaching students languages is one area, but uh, what kind of activities could would you recommend or would be good to teach students um, in the class in a in a classroom setting mm. or just in general, oh, in, general in, in general education it, 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 I, guess, yeah. I think I think that something that's important for everybody would be great for everybody to learn is is to you know borrow a wheelchair and you know spend maybe even an hour going out to your local yeah shopping arcade or local area and see just how many places you can get into. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that will change a lot of people's perspectives, mm-hmm. but oh, I didn't realize how difficult that was, or uh, et cetera. Um, in a classroom experience, I think it's important just to uh, you know meet with people who have disabilities, ask them about these things. So I think a lot of people, a lot of times, uh, especially students in Japan now, they've had very, very little exposure mm-hmm. to people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. So you know, have somebody who's open to discussing things that's not you know shy or afraid yes, of that, yeah, uh, yeah, and can yeah. honestly answer questions and people have honest questions to ask them. Yes, um, yeah. and that's you know you know just you realize oh you know they're just like me you know they can't walk or something or yeah yeah they're just like me but they can't see or something like that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I think that's definitely the, one of the most important yeah. reasons. Um, and find out people's hobbies and stuff like that. So mm, mm. you know they might think oh well, my that guy's hobby is going to visit baseball games. Oh, I wonder if the baseball stadiums are accessible. You know, mm-hmm. so they, they can bring uh, new right. And for students, mm-hmm. maybe not so much just related to tourism, but for students that are currently still studying, mm-hmm. 
what 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 are some things that they can do now um, to to improve the situation? I guess. Yeah. Oh, there's definitely like things. Um, for example, if, if somebody only speaks Japanese, for example, uh, there is um, an app called uh, B Maps. B Maps. Okay. Um, uh, there's another one called Real Log as well. There's two different options, but uh, B Maps is the one I recommend because you can also look up information on the, the web as well. Yeah. Real Log is only an app, so if you don't have a computer, or if you have a computer, you can't really use uh, it. Yeah. Okay. Um, which is again, when you're going somewhere, you want to look up in advance. You know. Something yes. Is, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So B Maps is good for that way, and what it is basically, it's sort of like. Um, a crowdsourced information on locations and their accessibility. Mm. Um, so anybody can sign up. Uh, so it could sort of be a fun class project to just go uh, you know, around again your local area and put in entries for those uh, stores that you visit. Right. You, know, so right. you don't have to put detailed information, you can just go inside. It's all icon based. Mm -hmm. So you can, uh, number of steps, you can put it in one or two or three or whatever. Oh, um, and so just and then enter that information and you know other people can add to it later so there's no necessary real need to yes, yeah. be concerned about you know how accurate it is whatever you know things you can definitely say well definitely this place has a step or yeah, definitely yeah. this place um, you know um, allows guide dogs or not you can ask that question over right um, okay so th they can just do that and go around the local neighborhood and for someone like myself that's really useful because if I want to find a place to eat then I can just look up there and yes, the place yeah, with yeah. no steps and then I'll be able to find it there. I have to go around searching and spending time. Right. Okay. So that's something you know anybody can do. So, so it's like a crowd crowdsourcing. So yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Right. Okay. Interesting. If anybody speaks English and has an interest in tourism, then uh, I'd love to invite them to the Accessible Japan forum as well. They yeah, can yeah. if they can provide information and answer people's questions, that'd be really helpful for me. Yeah, okay, well. yeah. Excellent. Is, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we before we finish? Um, I just to reiterate that you know accessible tourism for all is you know economically viable and uh, you know it's a real uh, untapped market and yeah. that uh, you know up until now you know it's uh, you know if if say for example they say that maybe fifteen percent of the world population has some sort of disability mm -hmm. so if up until now that hasn't been tapped and all of a sudden you you make your business um, or your tourist location or your hotel accessible then you've just potentially increased your market by 15 percent yes yeah, and you know yeah. what ceo yeah. wouldn't be happy about we went up you know by 15 percent you know yeah so i think it's important to remember and that um you know and, and it isn't just about people with disabilities um uh like i think in some of the data from europe over uh the people who are using special news tourism over 60 percent of them are people who are uh elderly um, mm, yes. And, yeah. Uh, so you know, even if you don't know somebody who's disabled, you likely have a grandparent yeah. that you can think, oh, you know, or your parent is getting older. And you know, so many times I've been told by people that uh, they hadn't thought about accessibility until their mother was in a wheelchair, mm. and that's what mm. made them realize oh, how mm. difficult things can be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, but also, um, young families, you know, uh, mothers and fathers pushing their children in strollers. You know, mm. they're before you know, apparently you would you know go to a station, you just have to carry it up steps, yeah, yeah, and that was yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, whereas now that with elevators uh, that were being put in originally for people with disabilities, it's beneficial for uh, people with you know, young children, uh, people who are disabled, people who are elderly, and that allows them to go out, be part of society, mm. be seen by society, and also uh, financially contribute back to society by yes, their economic yeah, spending. Yeah. So I think you know, it's definitely an important uh, opportunity that's not niche. 
that is a growing market. So. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Let's um let's end it there. Okay. Uh, thank you very much oh, for speaking pleasure. to me today. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you. And as mentioned at the start of this episode, Josh has kindly prepared a short update for us about the situation of accessible tourism in Japan since the pandemic. Here he talks about some developments there's been, and also how educational settings can continue to play a part in bringing about positive change. So I think that a lot of people who would be using accessible tourism um, also fall into the category of uh, being people who would need to be more concerned about uh, their health during the pandemic. Uh, for people who are seniors or or, or uh, who are you know compromised, etc., um, are a little bit more hesitant to uh, start traveling again. So it's been a little bit slower to pick up, I think, um, in that sector. Um, but in the last couple months, uh, since Japan opened its borders again, I've been getting uh, numerous. Um, requests for uh, renting wheelchairs or finding hotels, um, etc. So I think that it's really starting to pick up now, um, and it's going to get back to normal uh, for sure. Um, also, there's an exciting development in terms of uh, recognizing um, accessible tourism in Japan. Uh, there's a new award called the Japan Tourism Awards, um, and they focus on diversity, inclusion, and sustainability, um, and they have uh, a category for accessible tourism. Um, as well as uh, last year, uh, not only was there the accessible tourism category, but there was also the winner of the grand prize um, was the same as the winner for the accessible tourism uh, because of their work um, in promoting accessible tourism in Fukushima. Um, so I think it shows a really exciting move to um, incorporating and make having an understanding for accessible tourism uh, sector in Japan. So I'm really looking forward to what's going to happen next after the pandemic. I think that uh, academic uh, and educational settings, I think it's really important to have a lot of uh, more uh, progression in terms of accessibility. I think a lot of people with disabilities have uh, really limited access to the same level of education uh, due to schools not being accessible, um, high schools not being accessible, so it makes it difficult to get into uh, universities, etc., uh, which makes it harder to get into the job market in general. So I really like to see a lot more people with disabilities in the tourism sector. Um, and so I think that um, educational facilities um, can really do a lot um, in terms of providing uh, not only the physical accessibility of like ramps and elevators and accessible toilets, et cetera, um, but also providing um, the human side of the support. So maybe have an accessibility help desk where they can come in and uh, act as mediators between the professors and students um, to make sure that the students' needs are met so they can focus on uh, their education instead of worrying about uh, whether the professor understands their needs, etc., um, as well as just other um, interactions with students there. I think that um, students can bring a positive change in terms of uh, tourism in Japan um, by doing a lot of just little things, like even just um, you know, sharing on their social networks, like, um, on TikTok or Instagram, etc., uh, you know, if they see something that's really cool accessibility, uh, share it and tag it as accessible. Um, and I think these, a lot of people, you know, regardless of disability, um, are looking at the same media. And if they can see lots of pictures um, of Japan, from Japan where they're showing, uh, you know, ramps or elevators or um, need accessibility, then that will encourage them to come to Japan more. Um, also, just in thinking about this, the future for the students, um, the accessible tourism industry is really growing. Um, not only are there are tons of people with disabilities 
uh, about a billion in the world, but in the coming years, um, there's going to be also about a billion of people who are over 65, um, and uh, a lot of them are going to need the same type of um, accommodations as people with disabilities. So there's going to be roughly 2 billion people uh, with uh, possible accessibility needs uh, in the future, and it's really uh, still unmet in the tourism sector. And so if they were to you know, start businesses um, or encourage the places where they're working to get into that sector now, uh, they can be the leaders uh, for the next generation of inclusive uh, tourism. So I really encourage them to think about that um, and be excited for the future for them. Okay, so that was Matt's discussion with Josh. Uh, thank you very much once again to Josh for uh, taking part. Um, so I guess maybe the first thing to discuss is um, you said you part, part of the reason to talk to Josh was to um, sort of inform the tourism course that you were teaching at the time. So can I ask how did it inform your course? Yeah, well, um, so what I did is I obviously I went back and listened to the interview, um, took notes on our conversation. And yeah, a lot of what you heard was incorporated into the into the reading, the, the pre-reading to the class. Um, especially some of the the facts, um, the situations. Um, I made sure that they were kind of integrated into into the reading. Um, there was a couple of mentions of like hotel, partic particular hotel names or hotel companies. Um, there was a lot of different stats given. So just making sure that they were all kind of relevant, um, getting those in as well. Um, I also kind of like, I, I learned a lot from speaking to Josh, um, a, a lot of things that I hadn't considered, um, and I think the biggest take home for me was that idea that, um, well, firstly, the different terminology, that was another thing that, that went into the, uh, to the lesson, you know, there was a, there was a particular mention of the word slope and ramp, um, accessibility, barrier free, um, tourism for all. So kind of, um, highlighting the terms as well. Um, but also, you know, the, the idea that, yeah, the tourism for all, uh, uh, term that, that Josh maybe said he kind of preferred. Um, and, you know, at the time I, I just had a, a son and, you know, we were using a, a, a stroller a lot and just kind of emphasizing that point that it's not just about wheelchair users, for example, it's, it actually affects a whole variety of people. Um, so that that kind of idea that that kind of angle on it I wanted to emphasize to my students and also the the idea of um universal design um trying to build in that kind of design mentality as well and making sure that some of the class activities that we did were were kind of focused on how to design things um in a universal manner um yeah, so they, they were two, well, they were some of the things that I, I learned from, from the interview. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really, I, I, you know, like you mentioned, his, his preferred term, uh, tourism for all, um, I think was really nice. I think it's, it sort of reflects the more modern and hopefully kind of spreading um, perception of inclusivity and, and accessibility issues where, like you said, it's not, I mean, obviously that you can focus in on specific things like 
you know, uh, wheelchair access and, you know, are there elevators available for wheelchairs, but also for, you know, the elderly and parents with small children. Um, so yeah, framing it as something that's, that, um, affects individuals, uh, on one level, but also is something that affects all of us. And like you said, um, you know, even things like in, in the classroom, um, I think, you know, what, what would be interesting, um, would be to talk about in, in a classroom to talk about, you know, how, how accessible, how universally designed are the things that we do in the classroom every day um, from, from, you know, from, you know, physical perspectives from where people sit to how, how easy is, is it to, you know, see things on the board or on a screen um, to, to the specific types of activities we do in terms of, um, uh, you know, what, I mean, not, I'm, not, I'm not thinking about, you know, learning styles necessarily, but I'm just thinking about, you know, individual differences. Individual people will, would respond to different uh, activities in different ways. So I think, you know, it, it, it made me think about all of that, those kinds of things, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think for, for me, in terms of the actual lessons, I've done about, I think I've done about two or three years worth of, of this kind of group of lessons around this topic now is... um. I think it's it's interesting to see. So I did a couple of activities where I got students to kind of look at pictures of bars or restaurants um, or pub, public spaces, and to just kind of say, like, can you can you look at think about the barriers that are here in the boundaries? And I, the students really enjoyed that. They really enjoyed looking at a place that they maybe see every day, and then thinking, oh, oh, wait, there's a little step there, or there's a there's there's no ramp there okay and just kind of yeah getting their getting their minds kind of trained into kind of seeing these these kind of obstacles and they're very easy to miss you know and yeah so the students like like that the most i think yeah 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 it's a great point i think you know i think both of us we've had students with accessibility issues um and I'm sure like you, you know, it, it, it does, it does the same thing. It has the same effect on you. Like, you know, whenever you're in a, going somewhere, a restaurant or a government office or anywhere, really, you know, you, you, I guess maybe, maybe we, we should be more aware of, of places that are less accessible, but for me, at least it's, it's made me appreciate places that are more accessible. You know, when, when I see a ramp, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm somewhere that's made the effort, um, and I think, you know, it's, it's maybe a, a, a different way of doing it or, or maybe a less practical way or, or a place, a way that's not as easy for everywhere to do. But I really like Josh's idea of, you know, everybody try using a wheelchair, even if it's just for an hour. Uh, and, and, you know, the, I think the, the awareness raising of that would be huge. Um, you also mentioned, you know, have students meet with disabled people. And I, I th- again, that would be um, a, a, a great awareness raising activity. Yeah. Yeah. And al- although, yeah, although I think the, um, yeah, I think the focus on accessibility is, is, is important. I think that, that kind of that economic incentive as well. Mm-hmm. Um, although we shouldn't really, maybe we shouldn't be doing it for kind of economic reasons, but tourism is an industry and, mm perhaps more than ever at the moment they need to be attracting people um or getting people back again so i think emphasizing emphasizing that 
if places are more accessible and more um, open for all, you know, there is there is a kind of an economic imperative to mm. to looking at those issues. Um, yeah, yeah. Perhaps it's not the the most important point for me, but it, it was definitely something that Josh, I think, emphasised a lot in his answers. Yeah, it was, and I think, I mean, I understand that from a, a very practical point of view, and uh, and uh, um, I think you know, for in, in terms of sort of short term gains, in terms of raising people's awareness, I think that's effective. Obviously, I think most people would agree that it would be great that you know the argument doesn't have to be purely about economic factors. Like you know, I think you know, for example, places should be made more accessible, even if it wasn't economically viable, even if it was economically damaging, which which I'm, I'm sure it isn't. Um, but the yeah, the, I think there there are other other better reasons to do things like that other than the economics. But again, I understand why the economic factor is so important, and and you know, it may be the more persuasive argument for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in, and in terms of just being a teacher, um, I enjoyed having this kind of, this chance to have this kind of conversation, um, with, with somebody that knows about a particular area. Mm. Um, I'd like to do it more. Um, and also I'd, I'd kind of like to, I'd like to, well, the students haven't heard this conversation yet. You know, they've, they've kind of seen the fruits of the conversation in, in the materials, I guess. But um, yeah. I think I'd like to, and this is something I've thought about um, elsewhere, but um, I'd like to kind of produce these conversations for the class too, um, mm. maybe in, in collaboration with the students, you know, like mm -hmm. what could we ask a content specialist together or mm. Could could this conversation be be the lesson or a lesson material um, mm. in, in some way? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, you know, if obviously you know, sort of asking somebody to con um, contribute more of their time, but I'm, I'm sure people like Josh and, and others would would happily do so. Um, yeah, you know, if, if if the interview had been conducted by your students, you know, if they'd come up with the interview questions. And maybe recorded a video version of it that, that they could share and pass on. I think that would be great. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you know, as I as I said at the beginning of of the episode, um, it will be good to see more teachers taking a kind of a personal role in reaching out to content specialists. And um, I'd like to see more of that. Actually, more accounts of that, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we, when we, when, as teachers, when we're look, you know, especially teaching a CLIL course and, you know, we think, okay, where, where does the content, where can I find content? It's often in, you know, maybe videos, which, which are great and, and texts, you know, written texts, but using, you know, actual people, um, as, as a resource, um, like you said, for having students meet them or we go and talk to them directly. Um, it seems like a, you know, yeah, a big sort of untapped area of um, content resource that, that a lot of teachers maybe haven't used yet, but hopefully, you know, you can encourage them to do more of that. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was a paper by, I think it's Helen uh, Basturkman. Basturkman. Um, she wrote in 2019. And yeah, she said the same thing that um, there's not enough emphasis on teachers' personal actions towards consolidating knowledge of specialist discourse. So um, yeah, I think there should be more accounts, whether it whether it's as a research project or, you know, as as part of 
um, a course kind of planning activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or both, or both. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe just finally, uh, make, kind of making the connection with with Clil a little bit uh, more explicit in terms of this kind of thing. Um, one thing that really stood out for me was, you know, thinking about the the, the four C's of Clil. Um, you know, obviously content uh, is is sort of very much a part of that, and communication I think could be obviously, you know, what, what sort of language activities you could use something like this for. Um, but it also made me think a lot about, you know, culture or community. Um, he mentioned uh, a few things that I think connect to that. Um, I mean, one was the sort of maybe cultural issue um, in terms of um, people with disabilities. Uh, you know, I think he, he tied it to the, this sort of maybe Japanese idea of not wanting to make too much of a fuss of yourself, um, which might mean that um, you know, people with accessibility issues might not, um, you know, seek out ways of pl- making places for themselves more accessible. Um, although Josh is a great example of a Japanese person who who um, is fighting for those things. I'm, I'm sure there's many other Japanese people like him. Um, but also just this idea of, you know, community. Um, I think uh, is Coyle uh, and, and others in the 2010 book, um, talked about um or no sorry let me go back so uh coil in 2006 i think is the reference um she talked about it as um you know using these issues or or using the looking at um how an exploration of of cultural community in a cool course um she says to pave the way for understanding and tolerating different perspectives um, I think it's not necessarily a case of tolerating different perspectives, but um, certainly understanding and just make, like you said, going back to this idea of making people more aware um, of what accessibility issues might be out there. And, you know, like you said, making it sort of second nature to look at, um, you know, look at a place or look at a anything really and think about how is how accessible is it for all members of our community? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, we'd like to say a big thank you again to uh, Josh Gristale for for um for the interview back in 2019 and and uh, for providing an update for us uh, for this for this podcast. Um, we'll provide links to Josh's uh, website and he also has a book too that he's written um, to accompany his his work on the website as well. We'll we'll provide links to those. Yeah, and uh, uh, a really nice kind of short um, video uh, profile of him on NHK World, which I think uh, would be interesting too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, as we said, we'll we'll try and we'll be back again soon, hopefully with another well, another interview or another kind of uh, of this kind of conversation, perhaps. All right, thanks a lot, Matt. Uh, talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks, and yeah, see you again soon. And yeah, bye everyone. Thank you.